Well, welcome to those who are joining us in the sanctuary and online. It's good that we can study the Word of God all together this morning. When I was little, I shared a room with my sister, and sometimes that was a good experience, and other times, not so much. Uh, When I was five and my sister was seven, she got into this kick of taunting me every night. My pillow is so nice and comfy and fluffy, and Angie, your pillow is flat and hard. And I'd say, I like my pillow. And she'd say, well, that's because you don't know any better, obviously, because mom and dad gave you that pillow because they love me more than you. And night after night, she would go on with this until finally I just couldn't take it anymore. And I grabbed my pillow, which really was kind of flat, and I burst into tears and I ran into mom and dad's bedroom crying, I hate my pillow! I hate my pillow! And I remember dad looking completely baffled and saying, Angie, calm down. Here, uh, you can have my pillow. And so he gave me his pillow and he kind of sent me on my way and I walked into the bedroom holding dad's pillow and like a trophy. And I said, look, I've got dad's pillow and it's fluffier than yours. And she said, well, he only gave that to you so you'd leave him alone. It's not like it's your pillow. So guess what was the first item on my Christmas list that year? Biggest, fluffiest pillow ever. And I'm sure I was the only kid in Minnesota unwrapped that pillow under the Christmas tree with such fiendish glee. And as soon as we were going to bed that night, I clutched my big fluffy pillow in my little arms and I taunted my sister, look, I've got a big fluffy new pillow. You only have that old one. You know what my sister said? So? Oh! (laughs) I was so frustrated. I didn't know what to do with myself because even when I got the biggest, most ridiculously huge pillow in the house, I still couldn't win. Because Missy clearly knew something that I didn't. That the pillow that she had didn't make Missy's head special. It was Missy's head that made her pillow special. It was special not because of how it compared to anyone else's, but because it was hers. And nothing I had or didn't have would ever change that. And boy, that made me mad. Because suddenly I realized that she had been playing me all along. She totally got me to believe that the kind of pillow I had determined how much I was worth. That my value was wrapped up in the circumference of a pillow, seriously. And I was ashamed about what my pillow said about me while she lived self-righteous in her well-deserved superior pillow status. (laughs) Ridiculous, right? Nothing about my pillow meant a thing about how loved or valuable I was. And, unfortunately, it didn't take me very long to figure out that that pillow that I had wanted actually was too fluffy. It kind of hurt my neck. So within a week, I was back to using my old flat one. True story. (laughs) Now, that might seem like a really ridiculous example, because it is, but the way that we try to determine our worth and our value in this world is seriously just as ridiculous. Because the voices that we listen to tell us what we're worth and we're not, and they tell us we should judge our worth by the size of what we've had or what we've done or what we haven't done. And we listen, don't we? Let me tell you, it's time to wake up because they're playing you just the same. And this matters profoundly because unfortunately, we tend to listen to those same voices even about our relationship with God. In chapter 4 of the Good and Beautiful God book, James Bryant Smith says there's an earning narrative by which we seem to live our lives. And that narrative is that love and forgiveness are commodities that are exchanged for performance. We feel God's love and acceptance and forgiveness must be merited, must be earned by right living. So in other words, the favorite and the best daughters will in turn get the fluffiest pillows. 
And with that kind of narrative in mind, we form a picture of God as a cosmic judge who hands out rewards based on what we've accomplished. And maybe at first we think that's okay, but think about this. If we think we get what we deserve, no more and no less, that makes everything that happens or doesn't happen in our lives a judgment on our worthiness, right? And it simply makes God into the distributor of our earned rewards. That narrative leads us straight into one of two spiritual traps, self-righteousness or shame, right? If God gives us what we have earned by our actions, either, well, clearly I've been living right, or I must not measure up. In that narrative, your value depends on how you feel about what you deserve, which changes with what happens every day, maybe every minute, and what you feel you are or have in comparison to someone else is going to impact what you think God thinks of you. So in the end, that's not a relationship with God. It's putting your faith in yourself to produce enough to activate the delivery system of blessing. It makes both God's love and your value as changeable as shifting sand under your feet. But thank God, that is not the way God operates. His ways are not our ways, Scripture tells us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. See, the truth is, neither his love for us nor our value are determined by us. And that's what this parable is teaching us today. This parable that Jesus tells is not about what you deserve, not even a little bit. It's about something so much bigger than that. But I have to admit, this parable really used to make me mad. (laughs) Master invites some people to work in his vineyard for one denarius, good day's pay for a full day's work, and they go and happily work. And through the day, he keeps inviting others in, some for 12 hours, some work for 10, some for 5, some for 1. But at the end of the day, they all get a denarius, what he promised the ones who came at the beginning of the day. That kind of messes with us, doesn't it? We sympathize with the workers who were in the field longer because we believe that a worker is worth what they earn until Jesus suddenly shows us that we've gone and missed the point. See, it turns out this parable is not about the workers. It's about the generosity of the master. The master told those who came early that if they worked in his vineyard, he would pay them a wage that was more than fair for a full day's work. And he did. He was completely faithful to what he promised. And in addition to that, he gave the same wage to all who entered his service, no matter how long they'd been there. The master never said that he would pay the workers according to how much they accomplished or produced. Maybe what's important to him isn't the production, but the people in his vineyard. What makes your pillow special is your head, not the other way around. And yet, something in us wants the master to keep score, right? And we kind of get mad when he doesn't. And I think that's the point where Jesus needs to mess with our heads. Because so much of our lives are about keeping score that it's hard to imagine what this generosity of the Father's love actually means for us. Something in us wants to feel like what we get is what we've earned because then we don't feel like we owe anything to anyone, right? It's about being in control. But the truth is, what we can control is not going to get us anything eternal. The story of our salvation is not about the work of the workers. It's about the generosity of the master all the way to the cross, So for us to know this amazing, generous grace of God that sets us free, we have to first come to the realization that we don't really want to get from God what we deserve. We really, really don't. (laughs) 
And as much as we think we can deserve something from God, deep down we know that is the platform that is shifting sand. Righteousness means being in right relationship with God, but God is completely holy, and we are not. And to go from being completely holy to less than holy only takes one sin. Scripture tells us in Romans 3, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there actually is no such thing as self-righteousness. The only righteousness there is comes from Jesus, and it's God's gift. Only his righteousness covers us completely, and only because our holy God chose to come to us through the cross of Jesus, only then can we be made holy. See, that verse in Romans continues, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. We can't get there by our own power. It comes through the generosity of God's great love. There is no self-made righteousness. There's only the gift of righteousness. It's not about how hard the workers work. It's about how generous is the master. But we have to acknowledge there's still really something in us that wants God to keep score, right? The workers' complaint in the vineyard about the master's generosity was, you have made them equal to us, we who have borne the heat of the day. So let's think about that for a minute. Do we really want Jesus to give out salvation on a curve? Because think about who are we in this parable? When you think of all the Christians through history, how many have been martyred, tortured, beheaded, disowned? How many have been asked to give up their health, their families, their livelihood, their businesses, their very lives for the sake of their faith in Jesus? How many people live in that situation right now today? So let me ask again, are we really upset that God doesn't offer salvation on a curve? (laughs) Thank you, Father, that our Savior's love generously gives a righteousness that neither we nor the Christian martyr in Egypt could ever deserve. You see, it's one thing to see this parable through the self-righteous eyes of the 12-hour workers who feel they deserve more than what the master promised them because he was generous to others. And it's another thing to read it through the eyes of those workers who had spent their whole day waiting for chance in the vineyard. If you've ever been or you've ever known someone who wants to work but is unable to find a job, you know how hard that can be on the soul. So I'd like you to imagine what it feels like for them in this parable. Imagine the panic, the fear of those men waiting in the road as the hours of sunlight tick away, afraid that one more day is going to go by without a job, one more day without pay, one more day they have to go home empty-handed, one more day of standing around unchosen while the bills pile up. Can you feel it? And then with just one hour left in the workday, one hour before the sun sets and no one can work, the master shows up and says, why have you been standing around all day doing nothing? Do you hear the defensiveness in their answer? Because no one has hired us. And the master responds, you also go and work in my vineyard. One hour of work, not much of a job, but they all jump at the chance, silently praying that this might open some doors for them. 
And then an hour later when the sun sets, the master calls his foreman and summons the workers who had spent the bulk of their day waiting, unemployed, unchosen. And instead of the few bucks that their one hour of work deserved, he puts in each of their hands a full day's wage. A full day's wage. Beloved, do you see who your God is? Do you hear what Jesus is saying to you? Your worth is not found by what you can earn. Your worth is in the fact that you are his. You received and responded to his invitation, and all who receive an equal share of what's his because they're his, because that's the way this master works. God's love shows itself in a generosity of heart that is so far beyond anything we could ever deserve. It's not dependent on our circumstances. It's not dependent on our abilities. It comes from his love for you, which is trustworthy and unchanging and amazingly generous. When you look through this story through self-righteous eyes, it's easy to howl, unfair! But when you look through this story through the eyes of the one-hour crew, you can't help but say, my Lord and my God. And no matter what we might think, we are all in the one-hour camp, people, when it comes to the need for his generosity. When we realize that, then that first ditch of self-righteousness, we can leave that behind with joy. But the second ditch we fall into in that earned love narrative makes it harder for us to let go, strangely, the ditch of shame. Because as a tool that we try to use to earn forgiveness, unfortunately, shame can even be harder to let go of than self-righteousness. Author Angela Thomas talks about this in her book called When Wildflowers Dance. She said in her life, when she first became a Christian, for a long time she held on to her guilt because it seemed to her that it felt more righteous for her to feel guilty. She said to herself, maybe if I just keep flogging myself before God, he'll be happier with me because of my shame. And it wasn't until she truly understood what Jesus had done for her on the cross that she felt the amazing freedom, the profound generosity of Jesus' redeeming gift. And she came to realize she had to let go of her shame. She writes in her book, either I believe that forgiveness is what God said, free, available to anyone who would call in his name and completely able to cleanse the impure heart, or I really don't believe God. I'm staking my whole life on the belief that God is who he says he is, that Jesus really is his son, my savior. His death was enough to pay the penalty for every sin, and the Holy Spirit is, promised, is his promised gift to you and me for a moment-to-moment guidance. And for some reason that doesn't make sense to anybody, God is so crazy in love with his creation that he freely forgives any who would ask. That's the generosity of the master's love. Or, if you prefer the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, self-righteousness earns you nothing. 
Shame earns you nothing. Jesus Christ gives everything. To all who will receive him, he gives the power to become children of God. Our God is a God of justice, and that's why forgiveness took the profound and the terrible cost of the cross of Jesus. But this God of justice is also a God of the most amazingly generous love. And what comes of that gift is so much better than fair. It takes us to such a different place than any conversation about what we do or don't deserve ever could. He's the giver. We are the receivers. So where does that leave us? What do we do with the salvation that we didn't and could never earn? We live into it with joy. We gratefully grow into it without fear. We bless the giver by learning how to receive the gift well and how to help others enter his vineyard too. We can never repay the Lord for what he's done for us, but does he want us to give back to him? Absolutely. Not because he needs anything from us, he really doesn't, but because he's shown us that this is what real love does, right? It gives. Love pours out. As our hearts stretch in generosity toward others, we start to know what God's grace really is. That God wants us to find our security, our value, our worth, and his overwhelming love for us that nothing of earth can ever take away. He wants us to put our trust not in what we've done for him, but in who he is. Because when we get that, we're set free to live with joy, no matter how flat our pillow is. So how do we grow in trusting that generous heart of God for us? Well, in the book we've been studying, there are soul training exercises every week, and there's some in your bulletin too. And this week, the soul training exercise is meditating on Psalm 23. The book re recommends reciting it to yourself every day this week until you start to use it as your prayer because so many parts of Psalm 23 show God's generosity, his love for us. So I was trying to practice this a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this message, and I have to confess, as I was memorizing it, I kept getting stuck. I get through, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and then I forget, I freeze up. And the thing was, I found out, I was looking for another he phrase. I thought, he, what's the next part? And I knew the essence of it. He won't leave me, he'll be with me, he'll see me through, and in the end I just had to cheat and look. And I immediately realized what had thrown me. The next part wasn't his, it was mine. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. I will trust in your generous love for me. Now, isn't it funny that it's in the walking through the valley of the shadow of death that the language in this psalm turns from describing the Lord, what the Lord is like, to instead talking directly to him? That's not by accident. Because if you say, I won't fear because I believe God won't leave me, that is a theological statement. My theology is God is a God who won't leave me. But when you say, I will not fear for you, are with me. That's a relational statement. That's a statement of trust. Now you're talking to the king of the universe. You're not just talking about a God who's generous. You're talking to a God who generously loves you right here and now. I will not fear, for you are with me. 
Just like that, you've just walked into the vineyard. In the parable Jesus told, remember what all the workers had in common? Earlier or late, they all responded to his invitation. The love, the power, the gifts of that generous, amazing Savior are here for you. Will you enter his vineyard? Will you lay down your need for finding your value and what you deserve and receive instead the eternal value of what he freely gives? You see, this world we live in will do its best to make you think it. You need a redeeming pillow to make you special or a redeeming iPhone or promotion or vacation or relationship or paycheck or fill in the blank. But it's not the pillow that makes your head special, beloved. The God of the universe has chosen to redeem your head and to anoint it with oil till your cup overflows, to call you forever into his vineyard just because he wants to claim you as his own. So may the joy of that generous promise of his love for you set you free today to live into that love that's too high and wide and deep to ever find the end of it. And may that assurance set you free to go about your work in his vineyard with the greatest kind of joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you didn't end this parable the way that we thought it was going to end, <laughs> but that you completely turned it around to show us, Lord, that what we depend on is not us, but on your amazing love for us, that you set us free, Lord, to live and to work and to love with joy because of your love first for us. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us as we go through this restored series, Lord, to allow you to restore us those lies that have been written in our hearts about what you demand, what you expect, and instead that you would um, rewrite it, Lord. Help us to see that you're a God of generous love who calls us instead to live into a, a deeper life than we've known. Um, not out of anger, not out of expectation, but out of love. We pray that you would um, fill our hearts with that joy on this journey. Thank you, Lord, for your generous gift of grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.